Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hey there, everybody. This is Kelly, and this is the 25th episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to focus on a very counterintuitive but essential piece of the process of finding belonging. Rather than talking about cultivating closeness, we're going to talk about when to put distance in relationships. You have a limited amount of time and energy for true belonging. You may as well invest it in the places and the people who are capable of giving you a return on that investment. Now, before we get into this week's Facebook Live discussion, though, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage. It explores how we have turned marriage into a commodity and how we can reclaim it as the radically transformative experience it is meant to be. To get your free copy, go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com, that's drkellyflanagan.com, and sign up in the right sidebar. In your introductory email, you'll get the free ebook and a free sample of Lovable. Uh, And then after that, each week, you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Um, And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. Lovable is available wherever uh, books are sold, so you can get it in paperback, digital, and audio um, at your favorite place to buy books. So go check that out. Now let's get into this week's episode. Uh, Last week we talked about the most important thing to look for in your places of belonging, and this week we're going to talk about the other most important thing. Let's get going. Hello Facebook Live, welcome to week 24 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled The Other Most Important Thing to Look For in a Best Friend. Last week we talked about setting aside our perfect facades to cultivate authentic belonging. This week we are going to talk about how to use healthy boundaries in order to let go of people to whom we do not belong. Now, before we talk about this next important and and sometimes painful step toward true belonging, let's pause once again to talk about the steps we've already been taking. Someone told me this week that their therapist starts out every session with the question, what's your emotion? In other words, how are you doing right now? So let's start there. How are you doing right now in this year of listening, loving, and living? So while you are thinking about what you want to share um, in terms of where you're starting out at today, I thought I'd share with you a way that I totally totally botched last week's exercise. Um, I had a friend who asked to spend some time with me, a friend I hadn't connected with in a while. Um, and I didn't realize this until after the fact, um, that for no reason whatsoever, except my own stuff, I sort of assumed that he was reaching out to me because he was, uh, needing some feedback, some advice, some help, or some guidance on something. So I encountered the entire time together, this this wonderful opportunity to cultivate belonging, I sort of encountered it as a helper instead of like a human. Um, and, and so what I realized in hindsight was that I shared a lot of the good things that are happening in my life, but I didn't really share any of the the costs of those good things, you know, some of the toll that that's been, that been taking on me and some of the ways that I 
find myself very uncertain at this point in my journey and, uh, and, and confused and so on. So I, um, I, I did exactly the opposite of what uh, I recommended last week, which was to take down the perfect facade, share your brokenness, share your blind spots, connect in the midst of our shared sort of messiness. I didn't do it. Yeah, I had this wonderful opportunity with this wonderful person. And so actually, as I was preparing this, um, this episode this morning, I, I was really sort of becoming acutely aware of that and reached out to him with an apology, essentially, um, sort of a confession um, and uh, an expression of looking forward to the next time we can, can be together. So, um, so anyways, I guess it's to say that, uh, you know, you learn from your missteps as, as much as you learn from your steps forward. So um, be curious to hear about what steps you're taking and what, you know, how they're, how they're landing on solid ground and how sometimes they feel like missteps. Vic writes, uh, in terms of where she's starting out today, um, feeling accepted for who she is and loved. Vic, that is wonderful. Um, and as we've said over and over again in this podcast, um, being in that place is so important for entering into this task of cultivating true belonging. Um, because it's from a, from a basic trust that we are okay who we are and that we're worthy of being loved that we can show our true self to the world and thus really be truly connected rather than just having our sort of false self our emissary go out and meet the world um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled you're starting out in that place and it's a, it's a good reminder to us all that we this belonging piece um, is more complicated to the extent that we haven't first cultivated that that embrace of who we are so thank you Vic for that Heather writes, anxiety, new job, continued stress with the marriage, and working through my own growth. Um, Heather, you're, um, I appreciate your continued showing up in this space and letting us know. Um, you know, it's, it's so tempting. I think, of like, I think of the pressure that pastors feel to get up on a pulpit and say, I was struggling back then, <laughs> but I'm okay now. This is how I got through it, and we're all, we're all good now. It's, uh, it's really hard for a pastor to get up on a pulpit and say, I was struggling this morning, and I've been struggling for weeks, and I will continue to struggle for weeks. Um, because we want, to, we want to try to tell people that this process of growing and becoming is, um, is, is quick, and the hard parts you can get through quickly, and here's some steps one, two, three to doing that. And you show up every week, um, and I think we all know how much you are um, committed to this journey um, and really sort of cycling through it again um, and and yet struggling on an ongoing basis and it's grace for all of us for you to be able to be vulnerable like that and and let us know that it's okay to not just uh, find your way out of it right away so thank you for being honest about that Julia writes working hard on understanding that my needs and wants are important and I matter and my needs and wants matter yeah Julia that is so so good and so important and so it's going to be so critical to what we talk about today um, that you know so much of and again I'll borrow this phrase from Brene Brown counterfeit belonging so much of what is counterfeit belonging um, arises out of a stuffing down of our own needs and wants of believe you know believing that we aren't worthy of expressing those or having those met um, and so, yes, working hard on understanding that they are important, that they matter, and they're worthy of being expressed, and they're worthy of having people listen to them and understand them, um, that is so much a part of finding true belonging. So good hard work, uh, Julia, and it's going to be worth it in the long run. 
Julie writes, regarding the book, kind of trying on all fronts, not being so hard on myself for being me. Spent time with a friend who was also struggling with life and space to share about it without going into fixing mode, but felt like we didn't really dig into stuff. Was going to add, not sure if that's a bad thing because just hanging out is still valuable. Yeah, Julie, thanks for that. Um, that's a little bit of grace for me. Um, just a reminder that, and that sometimes we need that we need that initial space of just being together and being reminded that this is a, a safe person to be with. Um, and that can sort of form the foundation of going deeper later. So not it doesn't always need to be that that sort of deep, raw sort of intimacy, does it? It can be a comfortable being together. Um, so yeah. And, and, and Julie, when you say that you're you know, you're working on all fronts and not being so hard on yourself, I hear that expressed even in that comment just now. Um, about, yeah, we didn't go deep, but maybe that's okay. There you are again, um, practicing not being hard on yourself, and it's a, great, it's a great model for all of us, so thank you. Julie writes, I have a long way to go, Kelly. My first thought in response to your encouraging comment was that you have no idea how much I am or feel overwhelmingly like I am sucking at life right now because it's been hard lately to tell the difference between not having a job and everything is awful. Logically, sure. Emotionally, total soup. Yeah, um, thank you, thank you, Julie. And um, again, I think I, I think of you as somebody who um, you lead you lead with your logic. There's all sorts of heart underneath there, but you lead with your logic. And uh, and I think for most of us, that can we wouldn't we wouldn't know about the soup underneath if you weren't willing to share it like that. Um, so thank you for sharing it. Um, welcome to the soup. I, I think a lot of us are feeling that right now. Vicki writes, I'm a Beachbody coach, but I specialize in being a self-love motivator and helping women learn to love themselves. Kelly's book was amazing, and I had so many of my girls read it. Being a perfectionist is stressful and unattainable, and learning to embrace your flaws and your imperfections makes life happier and less judgmental on yourself and others. Yeah, Vicki, that's exactly how I, that conversation was so much fun, because I didn't quite know what to expect, right? You're going into a Beachbody uh, coaching group, and, uh, and oftentimes those groups are very image-driven and perfection-driven. And here I am, and I find that I'm, I'm talking to, to folks, and you are setting the example of this is not about that. This is about self-acceptance of loving yourself and finding your way of loving your body um, through fitness. And uh, I just I thought, it was, I thought it was wonderful. So thank you, Vicki, for everything that you're out there doing. I really am grateful for you. Heather writes, on news as it relates to last week, spent some quality time with girlfriends of 20 plus years and stuff got real. Granted, the wine may have lubricated the conversation, but it was liberating. Yep, there it is. Um, I'm guessing it wasn't all uh, fun and games and it wasn't all we're all doing great, but um, the liberation of being able to come out and say, this is, my, this is my brokenness, this is my messy stuff. Oh, you've got it too? Okay. Um, oh, we love each other even despite that. <laughs> um, it reminds me of, uh, you talk about being over lubricated. Uh, I'd probably had one too many glasses of wine. This was probably a year and a half ago. And I said something at a party and, you know, instantly sort of regretted it and woke up the next morning regretting it. And I texted the group I was with and I said, uh, Hey, sorry about that comment. And, uh, one person texted back and said, um, everything that happened last night happened in the cocoon of friendship. And I thought, that is one of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me. Deb W. writes, missed the beginning, but I have found that the just showing up part, not necessarily having the right words to fix the issue, is more valuable. Yeah, I think we've talked about this in the podcast, but, uh, you know, 
a sort of a transformative idea for me when I came across it in Henry Nouwen's work was the difference between cure and care. Cure is I'm going to take away your brokenness. I'm going to fix it. And, and care is I'm going to be with you in your brokenness. Um, I'm going to be with you and be a friend in it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, um, ironically, uh, belonging is as much about care than it is cure, right? It's, it's being able to have this place where brokenness is shared and someone is with us in it and it's mutual. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I feel again, like a little bit of belonging is a little bit more belonging is being born here today as we share some of these things. As I listen to these, these comments and these thoughts, um, it, they seem like exactly the kinds of um, sort, sorts of um, things that we would say after last week's practice, which what last week's practice was, um, you know, we talked about not trying to um, keep up a perfect facade, um, that in looking for, for belonging, what we want to look for is not people who are perfect or feel like a perfect fit for us, but people who know they're not perfect, who are okay confessing their brokenness, who can admit they have blind spots and don't know what they are. Um, and so this feels like exactly the sort of conversation that would stem from a week like that, you know, just permission to say, don't have it all together. Don't have it figured out. Um, and that what happens here in this space as we all sort of confess that together is that a little bit more belonging is born. So um, thank you everybody for being willing to admit that, uh, that this process is messy and um, that embracing the messiness of it is part of finding belonging. Thanks again, everybody, um, once again, for another discussion. Um, to me, I, this discussion had a little bit of a different flavor. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 felt, it felt much more like care than cure. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that, so thank you. Um, and let's continue now. Um, we'll transition into this week's reading. This week in particular, the reading from the companion book has a very, very direct parallel in Lovable. So I will read that first, uh, uh, the, the, the piece from Lovable first, and then we'll get into week 24 of the companion book. So the piece from Lovable is from chapter 20, the most painful part of finding belonging. Belonging usually begins by letting go of the relationships that are most toxic to us, the ones in which we are seen as something less than we are. Because when someone can't see the goodness in us, it doesn't mean they're bad, but it does mean they're bad for us. We can't change anyone's opinion of us, because we can't convince anyone to see us differently. We can only give them opportunities to change, and chances to see us for who we really are. However, when they don't, or won't, or can't, the thing we can control is what we do with the relationship. So, we may have to let go of lifelong friendships. We may have to quit a job and the colleagues and bosses who go with it. We may have to get free of toxic family members, the ones who, for whatever reason, refuse to see us for the good soul we are. We may even face tough decisions about spouses who abuse us with their shaming and multiply our loneliness with their low opinion of us. Of course, such decisions are best made in consultation with wise counsel. It is essential to solicit the feedback of someone who, who we trust to tell us the truth, because it is possible the feelings we are experiencing are still arising from the shame inside of us rather than the people around us. Furthermore, if we do ultimately decide to end a toxic relationship, it is important to have somebody, someone hold us accountable for ending it with as much integrity as possible. This is exquisitely painful stuff. And perhaps the most painful part is allowing the people we love to keep their hurtful opinions about us. If we don't, we will remain fused to them by our desire to convince them of our goodness. 
We have to accept there are people who don't think much of us, who dislike us, who see us in ways we are not, and we have to let them be wrong about us. This is how we move away from the people who leave us lonely and create a space for the people to whom we'll eventually belong. Usually our circles must shrink before they can expand. The losses can be so profound it may feel as if all is lost. Usually near the, second act of a, near the end of the second act of a story, the protagonist experiences the most devastating setback in the tale. It's the all is lost moment, the moment of despair, the moment in which it seems certain the character we've come to love will meet his or her demise. In the story of our lives, the dwindling of our crowd can feel like that moment, because in that moment, there's no guarantee the crowd won't dwindle all the way to zero. But it won't. If we are willing to go through this painful moment of our story, if we choose to love ourselves bravely by letting go of those who don't love us, if we choose not to give in to the despair, if we begin to invest our time and energy into moments and relationships and communities of people who sincerely want to embrace what we've already embraced about ourselves, it won't end in loneliness. Instead, by vulnerably announcing who we are and waiting to see who rejoices at the announcement, we will gradually begin to find and trust the people to whom we truly belong. To be clear, this is not about gathering around us groups of people who go to the same church or vote for the same candidate. This is about attracting to us people who have also broken up with their best friend shame, people who have discovered the beauty they possess and want to give it away like the gift it is, people who know they are lonely and simply want to share their loneliness with us rather than expecting us to fix it, people who have peered into the depths of love and life and want to plumb them, people who have begun to believe grace is not a fairy tale, people who have begun to believe grace is the greatest story ever told. So with that context from Lovable, let's get into uh, week 24 of the year of listening and loving and living. It's called the other most important thing to look for in a best friend. In Illinois, spring means a lot of things. Soft green grass, pollen everywhere, thunderstorms, soccer games, and the countdown to summer. It also means a big empty box sitting in the foyer of my daughter's preschool with a sign on it advertising the countdown until the chicks hatch. We arrive at the school on the day the sign reads zero and peer over the edge of the box. Nothing yet. I ask her where the eggs are. Caitlin looks at me somberly and says, the chicks didn't have a mama, so we needed to keep them warm in an escalator. I think about telling her it's called an incubator, but I know what she means and not every moment needs to be a teaching moment. I smile. She smiles and grabs my hand and we walk into her class together. How do we know when we found a place of belonging? The people we belong to know what we mean. By the way, I'm just going to interrupt this. We were just on um, vacation out east, and we went on several like museum tours, and she kept calling them detours. <laughs> when is the detour going to be over? Where, where's the next detour? But we knew what she meant, right? Um, the people we belong to know what we mean. I've seen it countless times over the years. In the middle of a marital or family therapy session, someone will say something gutsy and loving, and I know exactly what he or she means, but it's stated clumsily and with an ounce or more of protectiveness and defensiveness. As an objective observer, I can see the tenderness through the messiness. I hold my breath, hoping I'm not the only one who knows what was meant. And then I cringe a little inside when the meaning of the words is missed altogether, when the heart of a loved one isn't known or trusted or believed in. I cringe because showing that good heart took courage, and now it will probably go more deeply into hiding. But then there are other moments. Moments in which the heart stumbling through the words is seen, and its goodness is trusted, and its beauty is believed in. There are other moments in which a partner or a family member sees the incubator through the escalator, or the tour through the detour. A place of belonging is not the place where someone can anticipate what we might say. The people who love us best can't read our minds. They don't know what we're going to say next but they can read our hearts. 
A place of belonging happens when someone receives the words we've already said or the things we've already done and sometimes understands their meaning even better than we do. When we say or do something clumsy, they trust the goodness of who we are. In other words, they are grace to us. Recently, my wife and I were having lunch in a fast food restaurant. We were talking about the many things happening in our life when I realized we had forgotten napkins. Mid-thought, I got up, retrieved a napkin for myself, and sat back down. My wife looked at me and said, in equal parts amusement and annoyance, were you planning to get me a napkin too? I smiled sheepishly and retrieved one. When I sat back down, she looked at me and said, I know in your heart you want to get me a napkin. You want to think of me and show me love, but sometimes your anxious brain doesn't cooperate. In a fast food restaurant, my wife knew what I meant. In other words, in a fast food restaurant, I belonged. Over the years, I have been messy and angry and distracted and absent and sad and confrontational and withdrawn and overjoyed and clueless and scared and a little too brave. And I've made mistakes and I've hurt feelings and I've cared well for the people I love and I've cared poorly for them too. But when my love has been an escalator, more often than not, my wife has known I meant it to be an incubator. It takes time and courage and not a little bit of luck to find belonging like that. Even more, it takes time to trust and believe the way they see you is for real. To trust it isn't going away. To trust they will be there for you no matter how many napkins you fail to bring to the table. Oh man, well, it was sort of hard for me to get through that reading. Um, and you know, as I, as I read it, uh, you know, I'm aware that I think that the, uh, if I had to put my finger on what is, what transitioned in my, what happened in my marriage, what was the tipping point for us where it became a place of true belonging? And I wouldn't say it was when our communication got great. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say it was when, you know, suddenly we were getting along all the time. I would say it was that, that that moment or moments where um, it was clear that even when things were messy, even when one of us was making mistakes, uh, saying things in all the wrong ways, that we essentially trusted um, the good heart underneath the mistakes and, uh, and waited for that good heart to show up again. Um, and, uh, and that when that's happening, happening in a mutual way in a relationship, um, then, then you sort of, you sort of get to a new place of belonging. So anyways, I think that's probably why that reading makes me a little bit emotional because it's been so important for our, our relationship and for me. Dika writes, quote, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It means that they're bad for us, unquote. Um, yeah, Dika, that, thanks for pulling that piece out of that, that part of the reading because, um, we have to remember that when we decide that there are people who we don't want to keep pouring time and energy into in terms of trying to cultivate belonging, um, that that separation, that distance we put in the relationship doesn't need to come out of necessarily out of anger or hatred or judgment or condemnation of them. It can, it can simply be, I'm sure there's people that you belong to uh, and people who uh, will enjoy belonging to you, but apparently that's not going to be me. And uh, it's not working for me, and so I need to put distance here. And, and that's, that sentence really does try to capture that. Deb F. writes, Kelly, this chapter 20 changed my life, literally. I was struggling with family members who were, are, so toxic. I was raised to always take care of family, so this was hard, but it has been so freeing to know it's okay to take care of oneself and create a, a great deal of distance. Yeah, and, and Deb, I think, I think most of us have a sincere desire to care for family members, to be there for them, to want them to be, be there for us. And so for each of us going through that, wrestling through that process of discerning, you know, this isn't working for me. It's not good for them. It's not good for me. 
um, where do I want to see this end up? Um, how, 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 how do I find some balance in my desire to be present to them, um, but also my desire to be um, compassionate towards myself and caring for myself? Um, that's, what's, that's, that's so hard. It's a, and that's why in, in the reading from Lovable, I think it's the only place in all of Lovable that I say, hey, you might need more than a book on this one. Go get get wise counsel. Have someone hold you accountable for doing this in a in a in an authentic way, um, because it is. It's really complicated. But Deb, thank you for pointing out to us the rewards of going through that hard work um, and the freedom that you feel and the liberation. That is what we need to be reminded of. John writes, this message is why I have to accept my divorce and em embrace where I am with my very, very special girlfriend who has taught me what love really is. Oh, John, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a marriage therapist. Um, I have this like, this eternal optimism for marriages, um, you know, and uh, I believe so strongly in working to save marriages, but I also, I, I, I'm with you. I, I also believe, I mean, <laughs> I think there's also a fundamental flaw in the way that we do marriage, which is we let we let people who are totally uneducated about relationship, who don't know themselves, who don't understand what it means to truly belong, who, you know, it'd be like giving a 15-year-old a driver's license without any without any trips around the block. And uh, and so I think a lot of times, um, you know, we're set up to be in marriages where true belonging may not may not even be possible, and that's just a very it's a very difficult thing to wrestle through. Um, again, that's why I recommend people talking to wise counsel about it. But I'm I'm glad again to hear you remind us that there are rewards of going through the hard work. Dika writes, I'm very emotional. I always seek those people who don't require me to say what I mean, but with one look at my face, know exactly what I mean. Yeah, it's nice to have those people, isn't it, Dika? Um, and one thing I point out in this reading is we don't want to we don't want to put pressure on people to be mind readers. Um, we don't want to put pressure on people to, you know, sort of um, uh, be psychics when it comes to belonging. That's not what it's about. Um, but we do want to we we do want to cultivate true belonging with people who are paying attention, right? Who um, who are noted, who are are attending to us and noticing what's going on with us, and people who um, can see that can see that incubator through the escalator. That when we're we're not quite uh, doing a great job of expressing ourselves, that they can sort of see the heart that is wanting to express itself underneath. Those are the sorts of people we want to pour our limited time and energy into. Uh, Julie writes, my husband is holding on tight to his perfectionist shell, and while he is growing at his own slow pace, I am growing exponentially, and his discomfort with my change feels like he disapproves of who I'm becoming. It's hard to have the patience for him to catch up when I feel belonging uh, so many other places. Oh, this is, Julia, thank you for uh, your willingness to share that. Um, this is really normal in, in marriages. Both spouses are have a similar level of commitment to growth and change. Um, but for whatever reasons, personality, you know, uh, ambition, um, circumstance, one, one's process of growth just seems to, to be accelerated faster than the others. Um, and again, it's about seeing the incubator through the es escalator, right? So right now, his, his slower sort of growth is feeling a lot like an escalator. And the question for you is, do you see his incubator heart through that? Do you, do you see the desire to change and to grow in the ways that he's getting stuck? And if that's there, then, you know, um, being attuned to that as much as some of the kind of the 
um, the slow pace of what of the change that is happening. Um, so that's you know when I when I work with couples, that's you know I'm 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 looking for the heart. I'm looking for the desire to change, not the pace of change. Because um, if the desire to change is there, it will it will happen. And the spouse who feel you know is appearing to be further ahead on that road can sometimes be um, can gracefully call the other the other partner forward. I, I hope that that's the, the heart that is underneath that. Sonali writes, my therapist did something like this. We had both been traveling and I requested um, a session out of our usual schedule and she agreed. When I went to the session, I was awkward and self-conscious. I said, I am not sure I, why I wanted this session. I have no burning issue. She said, it's okay, you were asking for continuity. She articulated something that I hadn't even realized. There it is, right? Um, you you were you were calling it an escalator. You weren't even sure what to call it, what this reason was for a session, and she was able to see that that desire for continuity um, underneath that. Beautiful example of that. Deb W writes, I guess it makes sense that the closest relationships, like family, have the most potential to turn into toxic relationships. Gonna chew on that more. Yeah, Deb, I think we've sort of, and I think it makes sense that we're starting to touch on this more. We 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 touched on it a little bit last week about how. Um, there is a sort of, it's natural, I don't know that it's healthy, but it's a sort of a natural competitiveness that begins to take root in families. I mean, you know, it's a, a family, a household is a gladiator ring for egos, right? It's, it's where egos are getting stronger and developing and the kids' egos are naturally growing um, over the course of their development and ego triggers ego. So even if a parent's egos aren't very... Uh, kind of up, up front, you know, their kids growing egos will trigger their egos and husbands and wives egos are triggered by competition who's doing marriage better and who's contributing more and um, it just is this sort of like gladiator ring sometimes and the question is, is there a point in family life where two or more people are willing to step out from behind that ego and say, oh, that's what I was doing, I was being safe, I was protecting, I was hurting you to, to, to feel better about myself and uh, I'm sorry, and can we move forward more authentically? And if two or more people can do that in a family, then some belonging can happen. Um, and and this, this reading, when it applies to family, is really about that. Is, is there, you know, if, is, is there willingness to do that? And if there's not, do you continue to spend all the time and energy that you've been pouring into that relationship? Or do you say, Right now, I'm going to practice belonging in other places. Not to say I won't come back to this space with family, for instance, but right now I'm going to put my time and energy into practicing belonging in places where it's going to grow a little bit faster. So I think that's, we'll probably be talking more about this as we go through these, these remaining months of loving. Julie writes, seeing the incubator and the escalator ties back to a bit in your blog uh, post last week about trusting one's better nature. It's hard to be that person at times and really painful to be reminded of it hard to find them. Yep. Finding one's better nature, seeing one's true self through the protective false self. Um, I think that's our task. And to do that for people and give them a chance to do that for us. And if they refuse to do that for us, um, then, um, then we make tough decisions about how much we continue to, to invest our time and energy into that seeing in this space. Trista writes, 25 years into marriage and, and the evolving into our authenticity, Trusting in the goodness of the other's heart despite the stumbles means I've never, um, I'm, I never lose my desire to continue growing with him. 
The secret is not the pace of growth, but faith in it. You took words out of my mouth. Okay, thanks for that, Trista. And, and you succinctly said it. The secret is not the pace of growth, but the faith in it. So thanks for summarizing what I said in such a useful, pithy way. The secret is not the pace of growth, but faith in it. Julia writes, Kelly, I appreciate your feedback, and I think my husband and I both exhaust our patience with our 13 and 9-year-olds, and it's hard to have patience for each other. Boy, there's a deep truth in that, Julia. Holy cow. Um, that all, all of your patience with ego development is poured into the children, and then there's just very little energy left for that patience with each other. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's something that I often say, and I probably have said it on the podcast before, that I think a lot of times what's most helpful about marital therapy is that um, a couple has decided one hour a week they're going to prioritize putting their energy into um, patience with each other rather than everybody else in their life, you know? And I always recommend when couples are ready to conclude therapy that they keep that hour. You know, if they were coming in on Tuesday nights at 5 to therapy, then keep that hour, prioritizing giving your energy to each other first. Um, because, yeah, it, it requires a lot of energy. And when, you just, when you're on fumes, it's so hard to do that with each other. So, yeah, encouragement, I guess, maybe, Julia, to continue to prioritize that with each other. I am going to go ahead and read this week's uh, practice now, and then we can continue discussing for a few more minutes before we wrap up. So week 24 practice. This might be a painful week. Instead of focusing on lowering our walls with the people we trust most, we're going to focus on using our walls more wisely and frequently with those people who are not ready to embrace the revelation of who we are. This week, we will begin to consider distancing ourselves from people who insist on seeing us the way they want to see us rather than the way we really are. Your time on this big rock is limited, so it is probably a waste of your time to spend it trying to convince people who cannot see the goodness of your heart that it is indeed good. Who have you been trying to convince? Who are the people closest to you and at the periphery of your life who simply won't let you reveal the worthiness at the center of you because they are too busy insisting your incubator is actually an escalator? Who refuses to hear what you really mean? Likely, you are already thinking of people you need to distance yourself from, relationships you may need to let go of, appointments you might need to cancel, bread that is best not broken together. These people are not bad people. They are simply people who, for reasons you cannot control, are unable to see the good person in you. They may include old friends, new friends, family members, acquaintances, colleagues, customers, or anyone who is not interested in seeing you with the eyes of grace. Begin by listening once again for the voice of grace within you. It is an equal opportunity lover. It will encourage you to care for yourself by letting some people go, but it will also suggest how to do so most lovingly. As you listen, begin to make a list of the people you need to seek distance from. Next to each name, list one way you can do so gracefully. Now perhaps you don't trust yourself to discern all of this clearly. If so, that's okay, and probably even wise. Seek out trusted counsel, a friend you can trust, a mentor, a therapist, someone who can work through these difficult decisions with you. It will be worth every second and penny you put into it. Your one precious life, the limited time you have on this earth, is that valuable. You're not here for very long, so you may as well spend your time with people you can actually belong to. So wow, that is, uh, I'm, I'm reading that. I, I would do some things differently with that uh, activity. I, I wrote this, what, two years ago? I'd do some things a little differently with that activity, it, just probably in the way that I frame it. Um, I would probably do a little bit more of acknowledging the, the difficulty of this and the pain of it and the, the, how hard it is. There's an intense grief that goes along with this. You know, for, for many of us, our entire 
emotional and mental lives for years and decades sometimes even have revolved around trying to convince certain people of who we are and to see us in a certain way. And they uh, still are unable to do so. And so there's a real, there's a grieving that goes along with letting that go. Um, that, that relationship will never be what you wanted it to be. I remember asking my wife once, well, how is it possible to grieve something I never had? And she said to me, uh, Kelly, grief is always about um, grieving what could have been. You know? And so there's a grief here about what could have been if this person was willing to see you. Um, the way that you are. So I think I'd emphasize that piece as much as anything. Deb F writes, this was the toughest thing I've ever had to do. Deb, yes. The, you know, I, the, the, the chapter in Lovable is titled The Most Painful Part of Finding Belonging, right? The toughest thing you've ever had to do. I would, I would say that, that, this, that this moment of choosing to act upon your worthiness to do something so radical to change a pattern that is so ingrained for most of us, um, it, it, it becomes sort of this, this moment where we, we, we wrestle once again with our sense of worthiness and our sense of shame. Um, we probably, in, in this moment, start to feel our shame in new ways and in even more painful ways because a lot of times it's that awareness of the shame that's arisen out of this toxic relationship or, uh, or, or just painful relationship um, that eventually drives us to say, I can't do this anymore. I got to care for myself. Um, so there's so much that goes into this moment. Toughest thing you've ever had to do. Deb W writes, sigh, sheesh, that's good. Quote, probably a waste of your time to spend it trying to convince people who cannot see the goodness of your heart that it is indeed good. This is definitely an area that is a huge struggle for me as always. Thanks for the challenge. Well, and I will... Again, I see so much of this through the lens of my faith, and um, you know, I think this is one place in particular where um, well-intentioned Christians um, struggle because a lot of times there's a sense of, but wait, I have to, I have to abide. Um, I can't put that distance. That's um, not loving. That's not caring. And I think in particular, I think of Jesus, who um, at one point commissions his disciples to go out and spread the good news. Right. Um, and one of the first things, one of the main things he tells them is if you go into a town and they can't hear the good news, knock the dust of that town off of your you know, sandals and hit the road. Um, and I think what he's saying is there's urgency here, right? Uh, we are flesh and blood. We have a limited amount of time and space and energy. And don't, don't spend too much of that time and space and energy trying to convince people of the good news about who you really are. Um, if they can't receive it, move on. There will be people who are willing to receive it. And um, so anyhow, um, I, it's, it's hard, um, but I think that there's, um, I think even deeply embedded in, in my faith tradition, there's, there's an, um, sort of a, a precedent for, for thinking about it this way. Deb W writes, I usually feel like Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty when he's trying to make his girl love him. Love me, love me. <laughs> I forgot about that scene, Deb. Yeah, I think that's how we all feel. Um, you know, I mean, it's a habit we got into when we were really young. Love me. Love me the way I am, you know. It gets really intense when kids hit adolescence and start to individuate and really become different people than who we are. And, um, you know, and health, it's a healthy thing if they're able to do that. And, uh and we have a hard time with that as parents. I have a hard time with that. And you know, our teenagers are essentially in most of their frustration and anger are going, love me, love me the way I am, like Bruce Almighty. <laughs>
Deb F. writes, fortunately, I have begun to expand my circle and am now bringing in wonderful spirits called friends. Uh, that's beautiful, Deb. And that really is it, right? Like if you think of your, your time, your finite time and energy as a, as, a, as a pie chart, right? And if you're spending 80% of that time and energy in the same futile effort to convince people of your worthiness, um, then none of, that, none of that piece of the pie can get used in, in cultivating true belonging with people who won't require so much convincing, who will want to see your, you know, your incubator through your escalator. And, uh, and so, yeah, let's think about how we're using that, you know, each slice of our pie in that regard. Dika writes, when I physically distance myself from the people who make me doubt myself, the doubts they put in my mind still stay in my behaviors and actions in the way of limiting beliefs. It's really hard to get rid of them altogether, but I'm more mindful of it than I used to be. Well, that's really good, Dika. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, um, I mean, we sort of, even after we've put distance in relationships, um, those, those limiting beliefs, that's the, the sort of the shame that we took on in those relationships. And we take that with us into the next relationship, right? In fact, that, that chapter that I read from in Lovable starts out with a, a story about the process of having to go through breaking up with my shame, <laughs> putting distance between me and my shame. Um, that's why in that reading I referred to shame as my best friend. In that chapter I sort of talk about how shame was my best friend for a long time and I had to distance myself. And so we distance ourselves from people, but we also have to then begin to practice distancing ourselves from the shame that we experience in those relationships um, so that we can get reconnected with our worthiness again. Um, and so that we can then go into our next relationships um, revealing that worthy self and uh, and expecting other people to be able to see it as well. Deb F writes, Deb W, I found that the more I said love me to the family members, I got just the opposite. It was when I started loving myself that it didn't matter. Wow, yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's huge. That is so huge, Deb. It just gets at the heart of the lovable journey, right? That we spend so much time trying to convince others to love us so that we'll feel lovable. And even when they do, even when they do, it's never good enough to make us feel lovable because that's an inside job, right? Just as you just articulated there, Deb. That's, that's great. Thank you. Okay, so let's, uh, let's wrap up our discussion here for this week. Um, thank you again, everyone, for just a particularly, I think, vulnerable and thus to me, um, encouraging and edifying discussion. Really grateful for it. Um, I'm looking forward to our discussion next week. Uh, it's week 25 of the year of listening, loving, and living. We're getting to like the halfway point. It's crazy. Week 25, it's entitled, One Sentence That Can Change Your Love and Life. Until then, remember, you are lovable even when your incubator is an escalator. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable Podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.